There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. We we'll begin the readout tonight with the clear and present danger that has not subsided since the MAGA insurrection. Today, the acting chief of the Capitol Police, Yogananda Pittman, had a frankly terrifying warning about the threat posed by the right wing extremists inflamed by the disgraced former president's lies about the election, who then laid siege to the Capitol on January 6th. We know that members of the militia groups that were present on January 6th have stated their desires that they want to blow up the Capitol and kill as many members as possible uh, with a direct nexus to the State of the Union, which we know that date has not been identified. In a House hearing on security failures during the riot, Chief Pittman said that that very threat is the reason security remains elevated around the Capitol nearly two months later. She told lawmakers that Capitol Police didn't ignore intelligence about the risk of violence, but said the intelligence that had been gathered offered no credible threat about the size of the riot. She was also asked about an FBI report sent to the Capitol Police the night before all hell broke loose, which warned of war at the Capitol on January 6th and noted, quote, an online thread discussed specific calls for violence, stating, be ready to fight. Congress needs to hear glass breaking doors being kicked in, and blood from their BLM, meaning Black Lives Matter, and Antifa slave soldiers being spilled, get violent, unquote. Chief Pittman acknowledged the police did receive that assessment, but incredibly, it wasn't forwarded up the chain. It was shared with task force agents that are embedded uh, from Capitol Police with the FBI. Uh, they, in turn, uh, sent their email, that email that they received to a lieutenant within the protective and intelligence operations side of the House. That information was not then forwarded any further up the chain. So that is a lesson learned for U.S. Capitol Police. Meanwhile, we learn new details about the scope of the attack. An estimated 10,000 attendees of the rally leading to the siege descended on the Capitol grounds, and about 800 made their way into the building. That's all the reason, all the more reason, why House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is pushing forward with a 9-11-style commission into the insurrection. And true to form, the two top Republicans in Congress, who stood by the disgraced former president's big lie leading up to the attack on the Capitol, even though they both have acknowledged he was responsible for it, are trying to obstruct that full accounting, saying it's unfair to Republicans. It seems most of this is politically driven, and it seems like she's setting up a system to fail. Speaker Pelosi started by proposing a commission that would be partisan by design. An inquiry with a hardwired partisan slant would never be legitimate in the eyes of the American people. 
Before retreating into his shell, Mitch McConnell said the commission should also look at violent extremism from the left, which is about as deranged as Wisconsin Republican Senator Moscow Ron Johnson pushing a conspiracy theory earlier this week that fake Trump supporters are behind the ride and that well, real Trump supporters were too overweight and too busy carrying their grandkids with them to the Capitol to possibly be the culprits. Speaker Pelosi said today that she was disappointed in the Senate minority leader. I had the impression that he wanted to have a, a, a January 6th, similar to 9-11, uh, commission. It seemed, when he spoke, that he was taking a page out of the book of Senator Johnson. Meanwhile, while Republicans are desperately trying to move on from the terror of January 6th and the lingering threat of domestic white nationalist terrorism, the Biden administration is tackling it head on. In an op-ed in The Washington Post, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas wrote, for several years, the United States has been suffering an upsurge in domestic violent extremism. The horror of seeing the U.S. Capitol, one of the pillars of our democracy, attacked on January 6th was a brutal example of our suffering, and it compels us all to action. Emphasis on all. Joining me now is Congressman Joe Naguz of Colorado, a member of the Judiciary Committee and an impeachment manager in the recent trial, Elizabeth Newman former Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy in the Department of Homeland Security, and Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee. Thank you all for being here. And Congressman DeGuz, I want to start with you. It, you know, if the leaders of the Republican House and Senate, uh, the, the Republican caucuses in the House and Senate, believe that, the, that having a 9-11-style commission would be unfair to Republicans, that implies that they either understand that Republicans were involved or complicit and that they understand that if you unfold all that happened, it will implicate Republicans. I, I, I point you to one of your, I'll say colleagues in air quotes, since she's just a troll most of the time, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon supporter. One of her friends has now refuted her claim and other claims by Republicans that it was Antifa that was really to blame for the siege. He was on tape saying, oh, no, it was us. It was totally us. I was there. I was part of it. it do you think that what is concerning Republicans in either chamber is that they'll get caught out if there was a 9-11 style commission. Well, it's good to be with you, Joy. I'm not going to speak for the Republicans. I'll just simply say it's confounding. I, I don't understand their opposition to the reasonable proposal that uh, the speaker has made in terms of having a blue ribbon commission, particularly after the, the very startling testimony that we heard today from the acting chief, which uh, you played in part. I would hope that every member of Congress would want to have a commission take an objective look at the facts and ensure that uh, we're taking the appropriate security precautions here at the Capitol complex, uh, given uh, what uh, the acting police chief testified to today. But as I said, I don't know that I'm going to get into the business of uh, trying to explain the rationale of, uh, of the colleague that you mentioned or uh, any of the others for that matter. Well, you know, that I will I will allow them to explain themselves. So this is cut six. I'm jumping a bit for my producers. This is Mitch McConnell. This is what Mitch McConnell said in response to your sir uh, and your fellow impeachment manager's case. Here was Mitch McConnell's conclusion after he voted to acquit the former president. Here he is. There's no question. None. That President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. Same question then to you, Elizabeth Newman. You were in the business of, of uh, you know, dealing with homeland security when you were in the former administration. 
If you were investigating this case on a commission, a 9-11 style commission, wouldn't you have to look at the former president who Mitch McConnell himself blamed for the attack and look at other Republicans who were involved in inciting that riot? I, I am a, a staunch believer in a fully bipartisan, um, objective review of what all of the factors that led to January 6th. But I actually think we need to go broader. And I've been calling for there to be a 9-11-like commission for over a year. I testified before Congress a year ago this week and said the, the federal government does not have the tools that we need to be able to go after this threat. It is very difficult for us to do this in the executive branch or the legislative branch. It's highly political to look into what kind of tools we might need uh, to, to best address the threat. And I warned them that we were on the precipice of some event that ended up manifesting as January 6th. And here we are on the other side, uh, sadly now needing to investigate what actually happened on January 6th, which is very important. But if we don't go back and look at the broader trends, the disinformation, which Donald Trump absolutely took advantage of, but he did not create. If we don't look at the rise of violent white supremacy that's been happening for a decade, if we don't look at the problem of militias that have been happening well outside of January 6th, then we're going to miss the point. Um, so we need to have a broad look at all of those factors in order to get to the right recommendations of what we need to do as a government and as a society to combat the threat. And I'll just say one other thing with regards to Mitch McConnell's suggestion that we need to look at all violent extremism. I say the Democrats should take him up on that because the facts are going to bear out that the threat is coming from what we call violent right-wing extremism. It's not coming from the left. But we should, yeah. in the name of creating that bipartisan feel, if that's what the right wants to look at, let's let's let that be part of the scope. Yeah, bring it. Fine. I challenge them to find a thousand Antifa, since apparently they think they're living under everyone's beds. Um, you know, let me play, because the, the other issue is, Michael, that if, if there was an honest and thoroughgoing accounting of what brought us here, there would be a requirement to look into what amounts to parts of the right wing base, of the Republican voting base, because the people who are a part of that extremist movement, whether they actually vote or not, they want and tend to support Republican and conservative government. Um, and isn't that the issue? Can, can we play another sound of Mitch McConnell? This is Mitch McConnell. After he said uh, before that dude was responsible, Donald Trump did it. Here was him tonight on Fox, Mitch McConnell. If the president was the party's nominee, would you support him? Uh, the nominee of the party? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, Michael, they're worried they need those people to vote for them, right? They're worried they need I the know. extremists, the white they nationalists, do. the neo-Nazis to vote for them. Yeah. They do. And that, that, that encapsulates that very point. It encapsulates the absolute fear they have that, you know, 25, 30 percent of the base is just going to walk away from them, primary them, scream at them, yell at them. Um, and, and so, yeah, so he says that it was this bad behavior that brought about the insurrection on January 6th. But you know what? If he's the nominee of our party, he's my man. I'm going to be with him 100 percent. Look, I cannot agree more with Elizabeth. I wish to heaven someone would listen to what she's saying, because 
She's absolutely right. This is not something that just happened on January 6th. This is something that has been in the making for quite some time. And so if the Democrats are strategic. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. They will call the bluff of the Republicans to say, all right, you think every everything is political? You think everything is partisan? What do you want to do? We'll do that. We will we will include BLM. We will include Antifa. We will include everybody. Every we will look at every protest that has taken place over the last five, 10 years. Because Elizabeth's right, the facts will bear out truth. And that truth is what a lot of these folks who are stoking this stuff don't want revealed. The Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Bulberts and all that crazy ilk, they grift off of that lie. That big lie is how they are where they are. And so let's expose it. And hopefully in that exposure, they are summarily removed from the body politic as they should be. And maybe some of these Republicans will see, oh, gee, I guess the American people were right. We got a problem, meaning us Republicans. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I double dare them. Put Black Lives Matter in there because we reported on this very show about all of the incidences where Black Lives Matter would hold a march. And Black Lives Matter don't come armed to marches. They come and they do a march. And then the sun goes down and people who are not Black Lives Matter, who Black Lives Matter are filming are breaking windows and starting fires because they want to implicate Black Lives Matter to create a talking point for the people they support politically. It, it's happened so many times. We'll give them tape. If they have a 9-11 commission, the readout will send them some of our reports because we report on this. We double dare you. Black Lives Matter has been a movement about stopping police violence. You want to make them responsible for that Capitol riot? OK, they were wearing Trump flying Trump flags. Good luck. Do it. Uh, yeah. Congressman, the, the, the threat to the inaugural, the threat to the inaugural, the threat of the potential March 4th, you know, we're hearing all of this sort of swirling around. Are you confident that the Capitol Police right now are prepared in terms of their security protocols to defend the Capitol and protect the Capitol for the inaugural and for whatever might happen um, in March? Uh, well, let me. I just want to say this first, Troy, with respect to domestic terrorism, I think there's consensus in the Congress that it's a serious and lethal threat to our country and that we have to do more to stop it. The Judiciary Committee is taking that issue up. And I also think that Judge Garland, as our next attorney general, he made clear in his confirmation hearings that this will be a priority of his. With respect to the security but concerns. But is it a consensus, sir? Today, I'm sorry. 
I don't mean to interrupt you, sir. But you, uh, you're saying clarify. it's a consensus. It, is it a consensus across yeah. consensus in House Democratic Caucus? <laughs> I should clarify. Consensus okay, in the House Democratic Caucus. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, consensus okay. In, uh, with respect to the chairwoman of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime, Sheila Jackson Lee. Uh, consensus uh, in in the view of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, I think there is consensus there. Obviously, uh, we're going to have to do more work to convince uh, some of our other colleagues. In terms of the security concerns, I would just say today's hearing in the Appropriations Committee, uh, I thought, provided a better understanding of the U.S. Capitol Police's current needs and resources. And so, obviously, we're going to have to take some significant and substantive steps, uh, I think, in the coming days and weeks to you know, better support our rank-and-file officers during this very tumultuous time. So I defer to Tim Ryan, who you know is uh, the chairman of that committee, and I think he's going to provide the broader Congress with some recommendations on that front. Let me take a quite a little bit of a turn. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, because we are lucky enough to have you, Ms. Newman, um, on the homeland security front in terms of immigration. Um, there's been an attempted rebrand of probably the most unrebrandable figure in uh, American political history, Stephen Miller, who's now back out there um, sort of trying to, I guess, make himself seem less creepy and give interviews. But, it, you know, there is a reporting that he's trying to sort of wage war against the current president, against President Biden's immigration policy by trying to wrap uh, the former president around Biden's policies to try to make it look like he's continuing them and to try to flip the uh, the sort of storyline on him. Uh, far be it from us to uh, you know brace yourselves for this. This was Stephen Miller. He was on Fox News. And here he was trying to call the current the current president's policies inhumane. What we are seeing here is the cruelty and inhumanity of Joe Biden's immigration policies. He came into office and announced that there's an open door and that young people who come into this country illegally are gonna be resettled instead of returned. He is forcing thousands of young children into the arms of smugglers, into the arms of traffickers, into the arms of coyotes. These young illegal immigrants are being put in harm's way, all because of a policy choice Joe Biden made to restore catch and release. That is cruel, that is inhumane, that dude will never not be creepy. Um, the Washington Post, Greg Sargent reports that what he's doing, Miller, is that he's actually behind the scenes calling on officials to collect internal information for future lawsuits, um, that he is calling on publicly law enforcement agents to defy President Biden's policies and running a propaganda war to manufacture the impression that Biden's agenda is already a catastrophe. Um, he's essentially waging war because he wants to restore the anti-Brown anti-black immigration policies that he has snuggled up to since college. What do you make of that aspect of what we're looking at right now? Uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's it's uh, it sounds exactly like the kind of uh, conniving that Stephen does. And, and um, I what the thing that makes me laugh about it, though, is that he single handedly uh, destroyed one of the best opportunities for immigration reform in early 2018. Like the deal had been done. Everybody was on board and it was him. It was him that blew it up. And, and it so um, ruined the, the relationships with members of Congress and the Department of Homeland Security and everybody in the administration that basically it was like, we're, we're not working with you guys. You guys can't seem to get your act together and, and uh, make an agreement that um, you can stick with. And the idea that it's Stephen back on the Hill with the very people that that really loathed him, they they don't like him. And, and I'm not going to deny that there are probably a handful 
of, you know, uh, very, very Trumpian to their core members of Congress that that lap up any attention Stephen gives them. But the, by and large, um, the, the Republicans that just hold their nose and tolerate Trump, they really do not like Stephen. So if you were trying to send your ambassador to the Hill to try to make sure that your um, agenda is preserved. I don't know that Stephen's the best person to do that. Um, and I mean, yeah. I could go on. Like he's he's not a PR. Uh, guy. He, he's not making he's a compelling <laughs> argument here. Yeah, yeah. And very quickly, uh, you know, before because I do, I have one final question for the congressman. But but Michael, you and I have talked about this before. The Republican Party is assuming it can survive forever as basically an all-white party with the one or two sprinkles of people of color in it. That numerically is just not true. What is the point no. of sending that guy back out to further alienate anyone under age 40 who's looking at the Republican Party as a racist party that embraces neo-Nazism and embraces fascism? Why send that guy back out? Well, you still see the influences of, of sort of the Trump-esque kind of environment that has been created, number one. Number two, there's also the setup play for 2022 uh, to lay down the tracks as early as possible uh, to categorize and box in the Biden administration around this notion that now he's opened up the borders and we're overrun by these, as you heard him use the term, illegal immigrants. Um, and, and so that to Elizabeth's point, you've got to understand why, yeah, there's that congressional play that is, you know, why would you do that? Because they don't like you. They don't give a rat's patootie about that. That's not their, that's not the bottom yeah. line play. The bottom line play is the broader messaging that they're beginning to put in place to set the Democrats back on their heels on this issue on immigration. Guess where? With white suburban women. So this, this play is yeah. going to be one that you got to watch evolve over time. Yeah, unfortunately, we are out of time. Congressman Nagu, just very quickly, yes or no question. Is the, the $15 an hour going to pass? I think so, Joy. I think so. Yes. Excellent. Congressman Joe Naguz, Elizabeth Newman, Michael Steele, thank you all very much. Coming up on The Readout, the report on the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi won't just implicate the Saudi crown prince. It will also help expose the thoroughly corrupt Trump. Kushner, Mnuchin relationships in that part of the world. Plus, Ted Cancun Cruz is very concerned tonight. Not about providing COVID relief or about the freezing constituents he abandoned. No, no. He and other Republicans are concerned about Mr. Potato Head. Mm -hmm. Yes, the kid's toy, which is dropping the Mr. from its brand name. Oh, Ted, despite your uncanny resemblance to the Potato Head and your bigotry about gender identity, you, sir, are still not the absolute worst. But we know you'll keep trying. The big reveal on who outworsted Cancun Cruise tonight is coming up. And be sure to join us tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern for a special edition of The Readout on the racial disparities in the COVID crisis. The Readout continues after this. The Biden administration is planning to release an intelligence report that concludes that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman directly approved the killing of Jamal Khashoggi back in 2018. The journalist for The Washington Post, who had openly criticized the Saudi Arabian government, was lured to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and murdered by a team of intelligence operatives with close ties to the Crown Prince. The Saudi government originally denied the murder and then claimed it was an accident. 
an accident apparently involving a bone saw. We've known that the crown prince was directly responsible for Khashoggi's murder for more than two years now. But the release of the report marks a big shift in policy. Until recently, we had a president, one very focused on the money Saudi Arabia spent on U.S. weapons, who refused to openly acknowledge MBS's involvement. Instead of speaking out against this blatant human rights violation against an American resident, our former president released a statement titled Standing with Saudi Arabia, where he noted that, quote, the world is a very dangerous place. And concluding that it could very well be that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. Candidate Biden had a very different take. I would make it very clear. We were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Late today, the White House announced that the, the President Biden spoke with Saudi Arabia's king, Bin Salman's father. The readout of the call does not explicitly mention Khashoggi, but said that Biden affirmed the importance of the United, that the United States placed on universal human rights and the rule of law. I'm joined now by Rilla Jabril, visiting professor at the University of Miami, and Richard Engel, NBC News chief foreign correspondent. Richard, I'll ask you first, what will we learn in this report, to your knowledge and your reporting, that is new? Will we learn anything new here? Well, we haven't seen the report, so there could very well be uh, new information. But I think the, the new fact is that it is being released at all. Uh, there was a, a considerable reporting at the time, uh, and there were a lot of people in the intelligence community about two years ago when Khashoggi was killed. Uh, and there were a lot of leaks and there were a lot of uh, there was quite a bit of detail how the U.S. Uh, w was was certainly convinced had a high degree of certainty that uh, that the Saudis were behind the murder, because if you remember initially, the Saudis said they had nothing to do with it. They didn't know what happened, uh, that this was just some sort of mysterious disappearance that uh, the, this, this well-known columnist for The Washington Post walked into the Saudi uh, consulate in Istanbul and, and never left. And, and the initial response was to shrug their shoulders. So we, we learned quite a bit at the time uh, how the, the U.S. was very, very convinced that the Saudis were behind it and that MBS had to have at least some knowledge. But now to see it come out in this way, very early, one of the first major foreign policy moves from uh, President Biden, uh, it, it is, I think that is the significance. But we will see what is in the report. Uh, but, but the timing may be, yeah. may be more revealing than the, uh, the, than the details itself. And, you know, um, Rula, let me play for you uh, what the former president said when he was asked specifically about, um, you know, the murder of this person who was an American resident. He lived in the United States. He was a columnist at The Washington Post. Here's what he said when he was asked about that murder. They spent 400 to 450 billion over a period of time. All so money, all jobs, buying that's equipment. That's the price. As long as they keep no, buying, you'll overlook no. some of this behavior. But I'm not like a fool that says, we don't want to do business with them, Chuck. Yeah. Take all their right. money. Take their money, Chuck. He later boasted that he saved his A um, and said, well, you know, he said he didn't do it. So, you know, he said he didn't do it. So that was good enough for me. Money was always behind this, right? Money was always behind the indifference of the previous administration. Yes, not only arms sales. The truth is, uh, when we saw January 6th, the insurrection, this uh, so white supremacist trying to overthrow an American democracy and install a dictator, guess what? Dictators around the world, 
when Donald Trump was elected, tried to buy him off. Immediately, if you remember, Joy, in December 2018, uh, apologies, 15, at Mar-a-Lago, 20 days before his inauguration, Trump stood in front of the cameras and he said, well, I had a great offer from an Emirati businessman. His name is Sejwali. He offered to bribe me, basically. He offered $20, uh, $20 billion, and I had to decline. That message was heard from uh, dictators around the Middle East who start basically understanding that Trump was for sale, that America was for sale. Immediately, the first trip overseas was to Saudi Arabia. Then we start seeing every official from Kushner to Pompeo to Mnuchin going back and forth with Saudi Arabia. Then we had every policy regarding the Middle East that basically favored the Saudis and the Emiratis. And we know that there were business deals, personal business deal. Basically, Donald Trump blurred the line between his business interests and America's policy. And Jamal Khashoggi is the peak. It's basically the, you know, when we saw his killing, we realized immediately, and I hope in the report will come out, that the brother of Hamad bin Salman, Khalid bin Salman, at the time was ambassador, he assured Jamal Khashoggi that he could go to the embassy and he would be safe. Those calls probably are heard by our intelligence. The fact that Donald Trump understood immediately that there was huge involvement, not only by MBS, but the whole royal family who looked at Donald Trump as America's ruling family, and they didn't will him as if he is an American dictator. It's, you know, and Richard, when you think about it, you, you also, you know, I, I think about the close buddy-buddy relationship between Jared Kushner and MBS. They're WhatsApping. I wonder if we might see some WhatsApp conversations um, from Jared Kushner in this report, because he had a very weirdly friendly relationship. I mean, there was a time he suddenly disappears into the Middle East and, the, you know, he had issues with needing a big loan. And next thing you know, Qatar is cut off. One of our friends uh, in the region is suddenly our enemy. I wonder if we might anticipate learning more about his involvement in whatever was going on in that relationship. Well, I think that'll be very interesting to see. Uh, will this investigation or will what is revealed go that far? Uh, will it focus on attempts at um, a cover-up, for lack of a better word? Why uh, President Trump turned a blind eye? Will that be part of this? Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be. If they just want to talk about Saudi Arabia and they want to talk about what Saudi Arabia did and what information they had and what intercepts and who on MBS's, uh, who in MBS's inner circle was in contact with the team of hitmen who had the bone saw in, in Istanbul. Uh, some speculation about what may have happened to uh, Khashoggi's remains because they still have never been found. Uh, that's one thing. But if they also then focus on, uh, on the Trump administration, what the Trump administration knew, what Trump administration did with this intelligence, correspondences between Jared Kushner and, and, and MBS. Um, I would actually be quite surprised if it went into that level of detail because it would be a, a much more domestically focused uh, uh, report. Yeah. Uh, but we will see. That would be a, a different level of report that I think uh, that, that I'm expecting. Yeah. And before I, I go back, I have another question for Rula, but before I go back, I, I just want to let everyone know that it, uh, tonight at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces earlier this evening uh, conducted airstrikes 
against infrastructure utilized by Iranian-backed militant groups in eastern Syria. These strikes were authorized in response to recent attacks against American and coalition personnel in Iraq. Very quickly, Richard, what do you know about that, if anything? Well, not very much about the specific strike, but there had been uh, there has been an escalation of attacks against U.S. personnel uh, in Iraq. Uh, there was a recently a major rocket attack in, in Erbil, um, and there had been pressure on the, the Biden administration uh, to respond, pressure from the military to respond militarily. Uh, be, and and this, this administration, like with putting out this report, is establishing tone. Uh, it is trying to yep. set up boundaries. It is sending a message to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia that that kind of behavior, killing uh, journalists and then expecting to get away with it and expecting impunity will not continue. So that's the message from from this report. And from this military strike uh, on infrastructure is also sending a message to the militias that just because there's a new administration, don't assume that things have changed and they're going to continue to keep pressure on uh, on those who try to to harm U.S. personnel in, in, in the war zone. And I want to rule that if that if that new message might include taking a second look at the things that Steve Mnuchin is doing. He is now setting up business, uh, setting up shop to do a wealth fund in the Middle East, which seems quite inopportune timing wise. Your thoughts? I think it's crucial. It's not only about tone with all the respect. It's about substance. The Middle East understand two languages very well, power. They also understand uh, that there must be a punishment, impunity. Uh, they understand that there should be accountability. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi uh, started with also when, when Trump uh, emboldened uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he started sending death squads. They threatened an, a former FBI agent, uh, Ali Sufwan. They send death squad basically to kidnap people from around the world. We're talking about a rogue regime that is willing to do whatever it takes. So Mohammed bin Salman needs to be personally sanctioned. His assets need, need to be frozen. But also we need, in order to establish the dignity of the office, we need to see if there are corruption, if Mnuchin, if Kushner, if Trump took money to bend U.S. policy in favor of the Saudi crown prince and the Emirati crown prince. This is about the rule of law. If, if this administration is serious about the rule of law, then they should send a message. America is not for sale. There are going to be, need to be more reports. Rula Jabril, uh, Richard Engel, thank you both very much. Really appreciate both of you. And still ahead, breaking news from Capitol Hill on the fight for the $15 minimum wage. This is a big deal. But next, bless their shriveled up little hearts. These far right Republicans are making it way too easy for us to pick the day's absolute worst. Come on, guys. We need a challenge. That's next. Welcome to tonight's edition of The Absolute Worst. Now, you might be tempted to jump all salty and assume it's QAnon devotee and feckless Twitter troll Marjorie Taylor Greene, because let's be honest, she's got a track record of being pretty darn awful. Well, this week, she added to that list. Green decided to mock the daughter of Congresswoman Marie Newman, whose office is just across the hall from hers. Newman, whose daughter is transgender, posted a video of herself placing a transgender flag next to her door in protest of Green's opposition to an LGBTQ rights bill. In response, Green, who believes that forest fires are caused by space lasers, 
posted a large sign that says, there are two genders, male and female. Trust the science. Here's the video she posted. Yeah, the, Q- the QAnon Congresswoman clearly has too much time on her hands since she's been booted from her committee assignments and has nothing else to do for her constituents but troll on their behalf. You're welcome, Georgia's 14th District. The Equality Act, which is the source of the dust-up, would prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Green called the bill immoral and disgusting because apparently being a just and equitable society is a bridge too far for the CrossFit queen. Now, most of you would think that that would easily, easily make her the absolute worst. But no, no, no. Yet, no. Because you know who is the actual absolute worst? Well, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, of course. Senator Paul, ostensibly a doctor, appeared to equate gender confirmation surgery with genital mutilation. That alone is pretty awful. But what made this worse is that he did it during the confirmation hearing of Dr. Rachel Levine, President Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary of Health. She would become the first openly transgender federal official confirmed by the Senate. Dr. Levine graciously offered to educate the self-certified eye doctor. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Dr. Levine, you have supported both allowing minors to be given hormone blockers to prevent them from going through puberty, as well as surgical destruction of a minor's genitalia. Like surgical mutilation, hormonal interruption of puberty can permanently alter and prevent secondary sexual characteristics. Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision as changing one's sex? Transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. I would look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars of the standards of care for transgender yeah. medicine. Don't, don't, don't let him, don't let Rand operate on you. Apparently insulting your fellow human who is trans is a Republican requirement, and that makes Rand Paul the absolute worst. But on a positive note, the Equality Act passed the House and is on its way to the Senate, where it will need 10 Republican votes in order to wind up on President Biden's desk. And you know that means we could have 40-plus Republicans in the running for the absolute worst in just a few short weeks. Stay tuned. Well, we've got breaking news tonight. The Senate parliamentarian has denied Senate Democrats' attempt to include a $15 an hour minimum wage in the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. This is a huge setback for Democrats who were bullish on the prospect that it would survive. President Biden, a veteran of the Senate, had signaled this could happen, and it's unclear what Democrats will do going forward. The minimum wage increase is currently in the House version of the bill, which is set to hit the floor 
tomorrow. Joining me now is Reverend Al Sharpton, president of the National Action Network. And the Reverend has an exclusive interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, which airs Saturday at 5 p.m. on Politics Nation right here on MSNBC. First of all, Rev, congratulations on that interview. And, you know, speaking of uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, in theory, she could just overrule the parliamentarian. It's happened before in the past, but we had Ron Klain, the chief of the White House chief of staff on last night, and he indicated that's not something they were willing to do. What do you where do you think this goes from here? I have no idea where it will go. I certainly hope that we get the fifteen dollar minimum wage in. I think that it is absurd to think that people can survive off of seven dollars an hour or eleven dollars an hour given uh, where we look at the economic reality that people have to feed their families. And we have to remember people are also coming out of slowly a pandemic where they have extra needs. So clearly, I think we should do all we can uh, to maintain the $15 uh, an hour wage. Uh, I have no idea where it will go, but I know where I think it should go. And whether or not we deal with it in terms of an overrule or not, we must continue to struggle to give people what they need. Does this become uh, an issue for activists? Because, you know, Joe Biden has been pretty popular so far and he's gotten a lot of support from across the spectrums of the Democratic Party. But, we, you know, we got a statement tonight um, from Bishop William Barber from the Poor People's Campaign. They've been really pushing hard on this $15 an hour. Uh, he called this our economic Selma. This is it right now. And said that, um, you know, every one of them gets free health care. Every one of them, as you just said, makes a lot of money based on uh, our tax dollars. And they've never voted to reduce their own wages. Does this wind up being becoming an issue if the team Biden decides not to fight this. It will become an issue and an issue directed at this Congress and this Senate. And it is an issue that we cannot back down. There is a moral part to this as well as a political. And that is that we must stand for people to be able to feed their children and pay their bills. And uh, whether or not we have to keep fighting beyond or what is decided uh, since the parliamentarian has come with this, or whether or not we see something immediate, we must not ever, you know, they used to say when I was growing up in the movement, keep your eye on the prize and hold on. We can never surrender, particularly when we're talking about people having the ability to feed their families. We, we just came out of an administration that gave a tax break to billionaires. We can't tell poor people to understand some protocol and procedures. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of sort of uh, gamesmanship on the Hill, which, I, I, you know, you have dealt with presidents and trying to get policy through um, on this near a tandem thing. Uh, now the word is that Lisa Murkowski, who is undecided on her nomination, is trying to use leverage about where her vote will go to get concessions on things like drilling. And we know there are environmental justice issues here when it comes to, you know, raking more oil out of the ground. How do you think this is going so far in terms of the way the Biden administration has fared on the Hill, including with this nomination of Neera Tandon? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to see they have not withdrawn the nomination of of uh, of Nero. I, I think that it is the absolute uh, blatant contradiction for people to sit in the Senate that had a president that would insult people 20 times a day on Twitter and try to raise some uh, things that they considered distasteful, nowhere near as obscene as the things that Trump would say about people, including me. That, that didn't bother them. 
and they supported him for president of the United States, and many of them supported him for re-election. So by what measure are they going now by someone that might say something that they felt was disagreeing with them or characterized them in a way politically, never with the kind of uh, obscene, hateful language that a president that they uh, uh, supported? So let me get this right. The president can call people names. A person can call people all kinds of, of, of lewd and rude things. And you say he should be president. She could say something that's disagreeable to your position or your stand, and she can't be the head of OMB. I think that is a blatant contradiction, and they ought to be called out on that. And you'd have this uh, interview um, with um Vice President Harris, let, let's play a clip. You, you asked her um, about this issue of the skepticism that remains in, in parts of the African-American community about the vaccines. Let's play that clip. Yes, we must speak truth about the history of medical testing in this country. We must be honest about the fact that people have a righteous skepticism about how it has been used, how it has been tested, and on whom it will be used. There is a righteous skepticism if you know history. But I promise you, and I am telling you, this vaccine is safe, and it will save your life and the lives of your family and your community. Did you get a sense that the vice president is more concerned about skepticism or about access? Because it seems like both things are happening to the black community right now. She's very concerned, as all of us are, about access. People have the right to choose whether they want to be vaccinated or not. But you don't have a choice if you don't have access. There's not been equal access. And I think that she's put a lot of energy behind that. I also think she's saying that we have a choice of doing this or we can infect those that we love. Because what is the option if you don't use the vaccines that are there? You have black doctors Dr. Corbett and others that were part of making the vaccines. I was very skeptical. But as I started doing my own studies of, of the conspiracy theories, I looked at the Tuskegee experiment, which was one of the things that was in my mind. And the fact is, Joy, that in the Tuskegee experiment, they would not give the victims of right. uh, black people the uh, uh, vaccine of the time. Uh, they, it wasn't they injected it. They wouldn't inject That's right. what would heal them. That's so right. how are we going to flip it the other way around? Are we really saying that we're going to let others, whites, get all of what is available that could save them, and we're not? So therefore, the option is that we're going to play Russian roulette with our health and infecting others? Or are we going to use yeah. what's available that people like a black woman, like Dr. Corbett was part of this, are we going to use that to try and affect the health standing in our community. And I think the vice president articulated that, and many of us are doing it. I went today with, and brought uh, 10 ministers with me, and I was vaccinated for the first time. I'm not going to say I didn't have hesitance, but I'm going to say that yeah. I had to deal with reality.
Well, I am very glad to hear that, Reverend Al Sharpton. Thank you very much. We look forward to watching your interview uh, this weekend on MSNBC on Politics Nation. Thank you very much. Uh, and we are now turning really quickly tonight's other big breaking news at around 6 p.m. Eastern. The United States carried out airstrikes against facilities used by Iranian-backed militant groups in eastern Syria. The strikes were authorized by President Biden in response to recent attacks against American and coalition personnel in Iraq. That is according to a Pentagon statement. I'm joined now by General Barry McCaffrey. MSNBC military analyst. Uh, explain to us who the targets of these attacks were um, and what is the connection um, between them and Iran? Well, Chris, a lot of this joy was triggered by the death of a U.S. contractor. Another American service member was uh, wounded and several allied uh, tr troops are hit also. They've been conducting rocket attacks. The last one was up in the north in the Kurdish areas in Erbil. And lately, they also tried to attack again with three rockets, the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. So I think uh, President Biden, he's been around a long time. Uh, they took diplomatic measures to consult with allies and then took a targeted, limited strike uh, against Shiite militia units in eastern Syria. They're actually not in Iraq in eastern Syria. But I think it was a good move. It was a signal back off if you want to reopen negotiations on the nuclear accord. You can't do it uh, by continuing to act uh, to attack U.S. presence in Iraq. Well, that was actually the next question that I had, because we do know that uh, the current administration is looking to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, which the previous administration rescinded. Um, how do you think that something like this, these incidents impact those kinds of negotiations? And what kind of a signal do you think the Biden administration is sending here in this early outing? Well, first of all, we've got an incredible team now. The Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, and, the, and our new Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, these people have tremendous experience. They're moderate. They're cautious. Uh, they do want to reopen talks with the Iranians. Uh, the Iranians are uh, playing with us, which surprised me. Uh, they want all the sanctions lifted before there are any conversations. I think in short order, you're going to see, I'm sure the engagement's going on in private right now, uh, reopen the dialogue. The Europeans will be part of the discussions, will reenter the accord under some conditions. There are challenges. We need somehow to get at the notion of their delivery systems, the missile systems that can threaten not only Israel, but also as far up as Europe. So the last accord had flaws, hopefully the ongoing discussion will try and resolve those concerns. Because the thing I think people worry about is the idea of sliding back into anything that looks like war uh, in the in the region. That that's not something we should be thinking about, right? Or worried no, about. Oh, absolutely. I, I think you know the the whole Biden team says we're changing our notion of endless involvement in small wars. We're down to a tiny presence in Iraq, around 2,500 troops. A little bit of a risky situation, in my view. Uh, NATO allies are there with yeah. us also. Uh, but I think they're going to be very careful about it. But on the other hand, you simply can't tolerate direct attacks on the yeah. embassy and on U.S. service members. Thank you very much, uh, General Barry McCaffrey. Really appreciate you. Um, that is tonight's readout. Tomorrow, we will present a very special edition of this program live for the full hour with Dr. Anthony Fauci, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and other medical experts to discuss the racial disparities in America's COVID response. Don't miss it.
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.